Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series in Habakkuk. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're going to finish out Habakkuk chapter 3 this morning and just talk about hope. It's a deep and um, just extremely significant biblical concept. We haven't talked a whole lot about this through this book, but one of the central themes throughout Habakkuk is hope. And this is one of the main reasons why I wanted to teach this book through the summer and, and getting into the summer here, was just because with all the turmoil and chaos that's happening in the world around us, of all people, Christians should be the most hopeful during this time. And, and these are passages, these are verses that you want to commit to memory and just have as you're living a victorious Christian life, uh, walking with Christ. So um, Habakkuk chapter 3, you guys are still turning. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll start right away here. Father in heaven, just thank you so much for, um, thank you for your goodness, Lord, your grace to us. Ephesians says that you have showered grace upon us in Jesus. And uh, just looking at the rain and, and seeing it, experiencing it here in Tulsa this spring, uh, we just praise and thank you um, for taking care of us in that way. And we certainly draw our attention to the grace that's been showered on us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love for us. As we close out this uh, tiny little prophet, Habakkuk, I pray that um, these last verses would just, uh, we'd be able to sit, meditate on them, apply them to our lives in ways that only you and your Holy Spirit can, that they would truly change us and shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Rick Warren asked a question, what happens when a culture forgets God? What happens when a culture forgets God? And he sounds a little bit more like a rapper here than a pastor theologian, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you his answer. When a culture forgets God, he says, wealth is idolized, truth is minimized, life is trivialized. When a culture forgets God, abortion is legalized, television is vulgarized, advertising is essentialized. Everything is sexualized and commercialized. Education is secularized. Markets are monopolized. Races and politics are polarized. Sports become scandalized. Morals and ethics become liberalized. Entertainment becomes sensationalized. Crime is legitimized. Sin is glamorized. Courts are paralyzed. And sinners act uncivilized. Christians are demonized. And ultimately, God is marginalized when a culture forgets God. It was in the midst of his great suffering that Job's friend Bildad, um, you guys know who the shortest guy in the Bible is? Nehemiah, maybe is what you're thinking, but you're wrong. It's actually Bildad the Shuhite. Okay, so Bildad the Shuhite and Job, just focus with me, Nunley. I see you looking over there. Just don't, don't worry about it, all right? It's a good sense of humor. Not so much. Uh, Job 8, verse 11. I want to read what Bildad, one of Job's friends, says to him in the midst of difficulty and suffering. He says, Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. 
And then it says this at the end of, of verse 13. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. What that means is the further away that you get from God, the less hope that you will have. The closer you are to God, the more hope you get to experience. The most hopeful people on the planet are those who are closest to God. I want to talk about hope really quick, and, and let's just talk about this because um, this is a word in English that there's really no good equivalent for the Hebrew and Greek terms that are used for this English word hope. It doesn't do justice to the meaning, to the depth, to the richness of what biblical hope really is. So, so first I want to talk just real quickly about what hope is not. Hope is not optimism. One pastor has said, um, hope is theological. Optimism is psychological. Optimism says that things are going to work out great all the time, every time. Reality says that things don't always work out great all the time, every time. I could go over just a couple hallways away down to our church gym, and I could be really hopeful and have this optimism that if I can lace up my sneakers tight enough, I can slam dunk it on a 10-foot hoop. I've got a ton of optimism, Bill Thrutchley, that I can do it. At the age of 40, bad knees, I could dunk this basketball, but reality is I'm not going to dunk a basketball right now. Optimism is not the same as hope. Neither is hope escapism. Christian hope does not seek a distraction from reality. Going to movies or, or reading a good novel, a good book, has often been called the great escape. Christianity and Christian hope is not escapism. It's not the same as leaving the real world and entering into another. Putting reality to, to the side, walking into a wardrobe, perhaps, perhaps going down into a wormhole is not hope. It's escapism. We're in reality. We face reality. We deal with reality on a daily basis. That's the whole point about hope. Even though you face reality and life's difficulties and times are hard and, and life is tough, you still have hope as a Christian. It still be as strong as the day is long. Hope, thirdly, is not wishful thinking. Most people, when they say, I hope, what they really mean is, I wish this is going to happen. I wish I'm going to win the lottery. I hope I win the lottery someday. The chances of you winning the lottery are, are slim to none. The last statistic I heard is that there's a better chance of you going to the moon than winning the lottery. Wishful hope is what you stay, say when you step on the scale the day after Thanksgiving in the morning. I hope I didn't gain any weight yesterday. It's not the same as biblical hope. Wishful hope is not really hope. Wishful hope is just, it's a false hope is what that is. What we need is a definition of hope that is better than optimism, more real than escapism, and deeper than wishful thinking. And we get that in the last verses of Habakkuk. And it's indeed a strong hope that the Bible offers to us. First thing I want to say about hope in Habakkuk chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at verses 16 through 19. First thing is that biblical hope is anchored in an object. Biblical hope, like biblical faith, is always anchored in an object, and it increases and decreases based on the strength of that object. 
And again, your closeness to the object. The last 14 verses in Habakkuk, verses 3 through 15, were all about Habakkuk's prayer of praise. And every line in that poem, almost all of chapter 3, almost every line in that poem is about God, what he has done in the past to deliver and to redeem his people. Beginning in verse 3, it says God's actions from the past. God came from Taman, his splendor, verse 3. It talks about his brightness, verse 4. In verse 6, it says, he stood and measured. In the second part of a prayer, there's a shift from third-person singular pronouns referring to God to second-person singular pronouns. You read a lot of things, uh, God, Habakkuk is personally referring to him as you. You, God, called for arrows in verse 9. You split the earth. You, God, marched with your wrath and your fury. All the focus from verse 3 through 15, the subject, the action of the verb, has drawn all of our attention to God, who he is and what he has done in the past. And this presents this majestic, glorious depiction of who God is, why he can be trusted, and why we should have a strong hope even in the midst of chaos and catastrophe. This is interesting. Right in the midst of suffering in an evil, invading empire, Habakkuk does not turn to a powerful military, a prolific technology, or a promising government. Instead, he turns his gaze in his heart to God, because it's there that he will find the deepest and the most significant hope. It's there that we read verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed king. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. There's a major and obvious transition now to verse 16 in chapter 3. Verses 3 through 15 are all about God. Verse 16 is all about Habakkuk. And now we're going to see him respond to the revelation of who God is. How is Habakkuk going to respond now that God has revealed himself and he has given him a vision, his plan for the nation? How will Habakkuk respond? Look down at verse 16. ESV says this, I hear and my body trembles. This is Habakkuk speaking now. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Notice all the body parts. Habakkuk felt something very real. His lips, his bones, and his legs. From head to toe, Habakkuk is describing his personal bodily experience in this context. Everything about him from top to bottom, this is Habakkuk's experience of God and his vision, his revelation. And all of it is marked by this repeated verb, regats is the Hebrew, it's, it's tremble. There's a repeated phrase in verse 16, tremble twice. He trembles in his body, he trembles in his legs. And it means to be caught in restless motion. When you see that verb in the Old Testament, it is used of the earthquaking or people having a violent emotional response to something relative to the context. One scholar says this, this verb for trembled expresses agitation from a deeply rooted emotion. But the cause of the trembling, it's not as easy to identify as you might think. You've got two choices. Did Habakkuk tremble because he heard the revelation of the Lord and got a vision of God? Or 
Did he tremble because he heard the sound of the Babylonian invading army on his doorstep? And he knew that God ordained for the Babylonian army to take over his people Israel and to subject them to slavery and take them back to Babylon, to their homeland, and make them slaves. I don't know. First, you get Habakkuk's bodily reaction. Second, you get his heart reaction. What's going on in Habakkuk's heart? The first reaction is physical. The second reaction is spiritual. Keep reading down in verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. ESV says wait quietly or quietly wait. NIV says wait patiently. If you're reading the King James or the New King James Version, I think that's the best translation here. It says that I might rest instead of waiting quietly or patiently. It's, uh, it's summertime. You guys know all these, uh, you guys have spiders coming out in your houses in deep and dark places. I won't tell you where we found a spider this week at the church, but spiders are coming out. One day, one of our staff members goes out into the foyer area. I, I just told you I wasn't going to tell you that. It's in the foyer area and sees this nasty, hairy, awful, long-legged spider. And the decibel level of the scream was very high. Um, it wasn't from me. It was from somebody of the female gender. And I quickly came running out because of it. The moment that she saw that spider, she was gripped with fear because of the object of her fear. Whenever she saw that spider, fear was intense in her life. The moment she stopped thinking about that spider after I just walked over and quietly put it out of, put it out of its miserable life, her fear was gone. If you go to Silver Dollar City, you see all these great roller coasters. Brad, have you rode these things? Nah, I haven't either. Uh, if you go to Silver Dollar City, you see these great roller coasters. They're really fast. They're really fun. They go in circles, flips, loops, all kinds of things, make you really dizzy. I don't know why people ride them, but some people see them and they get extremely fearful of the roller coaster. The second that they step off that roller coaster, the second it stops, the fear is completely gone. It's not there anymore. In fact, in most cases, that fear has turned to fun and excitement. This is is a really hard point for most postmoderns to grasp, and so I want to say this really carefully, and I'm going to be... paying really close attention to my notes, because we're so fixated on our feelings. If you love another person, the moment you stop thinking about that person is the moment you stop loving them. If you have a deep love relationship with another person, you experience that love when you think about the object, the person of that love. You are no longer loving them when you stop thinking about them. You are no longer fearing the spider when you stop thinking about the spider. You are no longer fearing the roller coaster when you get off the roller coaster. You and I cannot hope and think about the feeling of hope at the same time. You and I cannot hope and think about the feeling of hope at the same time. Or let me put it this way. Guys, if you struggle with sexual sin, stop thinking about the object of your lust and start thinking about the passion itself. What's there that's so gripping about it? Why are you experiencing that passion? And what do you hope that it's going to give you at the end 
of the day? What's it really pointing to? Here's what I want to say. Biblical hope points to an object. It always moves toward an object. An essential aspect of hope is the attention to the object to which the hope is turned toward. So many of us want love by focusing on love's feeling. You understand what I'm saying in this context? Desire is short-lived when the object of that desire is gone and it no longer holds your attention. Your hope, your love, your faith doesn't grow by experiencing an emotion, a feeling, or some intense gripping of your stomach or anything of the such. Your hope, your faith, your love grows the more you pay attention to the object of that hope, faith, and love. If you want to grow in your hope towards Christ, here's the answer. Think about Christ. If you want to grow in your love for Jesus, here's what you need to do. Focus your heart and your attention on Jesus, on who he is, on what he has done for you. Look at verse 16. It says, I wait, uh, in the ESV, wait patiently. One of your best translations there is going to be rest. And, and rest there is the perfect antithesis to trembling at the beginning of that verse, right? At the beginning, Habakkuk either sees the vision of God or he sees the Babylonian horde. He hears them coming, and he is trembling with fear. At the end of verse 16, he's completely different. Now he has rest, total peace. One linguist says this word for rest signifies not only the absence of movement, but being settled in a particular place with overtones of finality, victory, or salvation. Listen, Habakkuk starts, and he is literally trembling and shaking, the same word that's used for earthquakes in the Old Testament. Then he makes a move toward hope, and he stops thinking about, perhaps, the Babylonian army. And he starts thinking about the object of his hope, which is whom? God. And his life is totally changed. Because why? Biblical hope is anchored in an object. You want to experience more hope? You want a stronger hope when life is chaotic and you go through suffering and difficulties? Focus your attention on God, on who he is. Number two. Biblical hope is found in a person. Biblical hope is found in a person. Look down at verse 17. The beauty of this uh, extremely famous poem here is, is in its structure. And so I'm going to flesh this out a little bit. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, though flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 17 begins with a preposition. Almost all of your translations are going to say though. And the Hebrew word there, that Hebrew preposition, is very common. There's two ways that you can translate this. You can translate it either as indicating possible outcome, which is though, it's the majority of your translations say that, or you can translate it as indicating a sure outcome which you might translate when. 
instead. If you translate it as a sure outcome, which is, I think, what we should do in this context, verse 17 reads this way, when the fig tree should not blossom, when the fruit is not on the vines, when the produce and the olive fail, when the fields yield no, no food, over and over again. In Hebrew, the preposition should be repeated three times. In verse 17, there's three parallel lines, or you would say six individual lines as the poem progresses. When the fig tree does not blossom, when the produce fails, when the flock is cut off. Habakkuk is describing Israel under covenant curse. Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30. This is what's going to happen to the people if they are unfaithful to keep the covenant that I've commanded them to keep. You will experience covenant curse. And here it is as part of that curse. The fig tree is not going to blossom. There will be no fruit on the vines and all of these things that are listed. Habakkuk is describing, again, Israel under covenant curse. He's also describing life in a fallen world. This is the reality. This is the world in which we live. It's not a question if suffering is going to happen to you and I as Christians, but the only question is when. And when we suffer, we tend to focus on the why questions, right? Why me? Why now? Why this? Why that? Why her? Why him? Why all the time? Most of the time in Scripture, God doesn't give the why. Again, we live in a fallen world. Suffering is real. We experience it because of that. C.S. Lewis says the question wasn't why so many people suffer. shouldn't be why so many people suffer. The question should really be why more people don't because of our rebellion against God. He says, you can ignore even pleasure, but pain and suffering insists on being attended to. Why do people suffer? So we can depend more on God. Suffering is often a test for us. It's often because we live in a fallen world as well. The forces of evil and wickedness in heavenly places that we can't see are working against us. Altogether, verse 17 has a total of six lines, three couplets. It helps to understand the, the cultural background to understand this a little bit. A fig tree not being in blossom. That's your first line. Figs were somewhat of a delicacy in Israel. If a fig tree wasn't in blossom, that wasn't going to really affect an economy. That's going to affect the wealthy of Israel. It's an inconvenience more than anything. The figs were a, a national fruit of blessing in Israel. I think that's the bigger point of this poem in the context. The second thing it says is that grapes from the vine will not be produced. Now, grapes, again, weren't widely used at this time in Israel. Grapes were, were something that you would make wine with. Again, an inconvenience more than anything. But then it says the produce of the olive. Olive oil was used for cooking, and it was used for lighting. That is much more than an inconvenience. That is going to affect the entire economy. That's going to affect your ability to do your job. That's going to affect your ability to feed your family. No crops is the fourth line. That means there's no grain, there's no wheat, and there's no barley harvest. Those are two staples in a Palestinian or Israeli diet. They are all over the place over there. Flocks refer to sheep and goats. They would have been used for wool, and they would have also been used for meat. Again, now you're talking about starvation for a country. The herd is a reference to cattle. 
At this time, when this poem is written, they were prim primarily instruments of agriculture. Only the extremely wealthy would butcher cattle. Most people would use them to work the fields. Now you have no way to plow the fields, to plant, to harvest, to do the things that you normally do to feed your families. In the structure of the poem, each line gets progressively worse as it goes down. The next thing mentioned is worse than the last. Individually, the loss of any of these things can be overcome. Sure, it'll present some difficulty. Collectively, the loss of all of them would have been devastating for the nation of Israel. It spells economic disaster, loss of national security, and hopelessness in every way. Look down at verse 18. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. Major contrast here. One commentator says this, the prophet's, prophet's weakened physical state is contrasted with his incredibly strong spiritual state. Even though all this will happen, I will rejoice. I will take joy. Commentator says he realized that inner peace did not depend on outward prosperity. I think that's a good lesson for hope for all of us. Does your inner peace depend on your outward prosperity? That's not peace. And that's not a hope that endures. That's wishful thinking. Optimism. Notice, Habakkuk did not state that he would merely endure the hour of distress, wait it out. He said he was going to rejoice in the hour of distress. Joy, like hope, has an object. Look at the objects of the prepositions in, verses, in verse 18. Yet I'll rejoice in the Lord. Who is he rejoicing in? A person. Next line, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Rejoicing, taking joy in a person. We must always view our adverse circumstances through the eye of faith, not reason. We must always view our adverse circumstances through the eyes of faith, not reason or sense. These verses remind us of great, strong passages of joy in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 reminds us that we have been born again into a living hope, a resurrected hope through Christ. Listen to Titus 2.13. We wait for our blessed hope. What is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope, number one, is anchored in an object. Number two is found in a person. Number three, hope functions in difficult times, in times of difficulty. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Whereas verse 18 began with a reference to Habakkuk and what the prophet would do, verse 19 now closes with a reference to God and what God will do. This title for God is, is interesting. God the Lord, your translations might say a little something different there. ESV has God the Lord. It's only found five other times in the Old Testament. And all of those occasions of that name for God in the Old Testament are in the book of Psalms. Listen to Psalm 68, verse 20. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. Now, you would think, just take a step back here, you would think that the prophets in the Old Testament would rely on this specific name of God more so even than other names. 
when they pray to God and when they experience suffering because that's essentially the message of the prophets. Hey, listen, guys, if you're not faithful to the law, if you don't keep the law, you're not obedient to Christ, you're going to experience covenant curse. All right? And in this covenant curse, you're going to have to rely on me, on God, more than ever. And so here's the way I've revealed myself to you. I am God the Lord. And you would think you would read that in abundance in the prophets. Five times is all you get it in the Psalms. And most major translations have the Lord God or the sovereign Lord at the beginning of this verse. The name emphasizes God's personal relationship with his people and specifically with Habakkuk in this context, as well as his might and his majesty. Listen, Habakkuk is using the strongest names for God that he is, he, are available to him. He also uses the names that show the closest relational terms of who God is as he relates to his people. I want you to take a look at uh, some of the images that were sent to me this week. I, I told you last week I'd, I've watched three stations on cable, ESPN, the History Channel, and the Nature Channel. These mountain goats are all over the place on the Nature Channel. It's, it's amazing to watch them. And what's really amazing is when you see them running away from their predators as they go. These guys will scale the side of a mountain like it's nothing. A 60-degree incline is nothing for these mountain goats. It's amazing the image that God gives us at the end of this book has to do with rough terrain, mountainous regions, places in life that are difficult to traverse, difficult to tread upon. God says that he will make our feet like a deer's feet. He makes us tread on high places. Nothing has the traction to navigate difficult terrain like a deer and a goat in this part of the country. They leap, they run full speed away from, toward anything that they want to. When Habakkuk says that God makes his feet like a deer's, the metaphor is meant to describe strength and sure-footedness, beauty and speed. Ron Blue's a commentary. He says in verse 19, not only would Habakkuk bound through this trial, he would also climb to the mountaintops in victory and triumph because of God. The phrase here at the end is, he makes me tread on my high places. Moses uses that same description when he describes God's care for the Israelites in the wilderness. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 13. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and they ate the produce of the field. When David was running from Saul in the Old Testament, all those stories, First and Second Samuel, getting into at the end of First Samuel especially, there are some rugged places that David was hiding from Saul. There were caves in mountainous regions everywhere. Second Samuel chapter 22, verse 34, he made my feet like the feet of a deer, and he set me on secure on the heights. What's significant is the change in Habakkuk again. From the beginning of chapter 3, even verse 16, to the end here in verse 19. What described his legs and his feet in verse 16? Trembling, shaking. What describes his sure-footedness in verse 19? Strength, speed, agility. A couple points of application before we take the Lord's Supper here. Number one. Hope, biblically speaking, 
means that you and I must constantly think of Christ and his kingdom. Biblical hope beckons us to occupy our minds with Christ and his kingdom. Christians are meant to hope. We are hope-shaped creatures ever since Genesis 3. When a relationship with God was damaged beyond recognition, there was a hope that came into the mind and the heart of sinful men. Ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, the need for hope was apparent. When we occupy our minds with Christ, Colossians tells us, we set our mind on the things above, not on the things below. For the things above are eternal, but the things below are just temporary. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Some people have a wrongful perspective that Christians who think the most about eternity in the kingdom of God are the least effective in this world. Christians who think the most of the next world are the least effective in the here and the now, but history tells us the exact opposite. It's exactly those individuals who, who have thought the most of eternity who have been the most effective in this world. C.S. Lewis is a great phrase here. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Hope number two needs, means we need to examine our desires. People have real longings for eternity. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, I think, that God has set eternity on the hearts of men. We have a real longing and a desire for eternity. We just struggle to know it. We struggle to identify it as that when we experience it. When our friends or family members die, we immediately say, I really want to see them again. I miss that person. Or when we have a great travel destination, we go somewhere and we experience the beauty of God's creation. Man, I wish I could just go back to that place. I want to go there again. It was so beautiful. Why? There's a desire there. And people think that in those things they have hope. There's a meaningful and a significance that's right there, but it cannot compare to the hope that we have because of God's glory. Colossians talks about the hope of glory grounded in a person who is Jesus Christ. One of my favorite theologians put it this way, if I find myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire in which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Biblical hope is a very technical, specific hope in Scripture. And here's what it is. It is grounded in a person who is Jesus, his coming, and his kingdom. Biblical hope is always forward-looking and future-oriented. It is always centered around Christ and his kingdom to come, his return to the earth in glory. Biblical hope is heard in the promises of God. It is seen in the person of God, especially Jesus Christ, is it experienced with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit which he has given. Biblical hope is a work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that draws us closer and closer every step of the way, every single day to a relationship with God that means something, that changes our hearts and our lives. 
It has an effect on the people that we love, the relationships that we have, the things that we do, and the way we experience a chaotic and catastrophic world around us. You need something to hold on to that's deeper than 70 or 80 years of your life. You need something that's stronger than the United States military or our national association. You need someone who's stronger than the president to anchor your hope in. You need someone that's stronger than an ideology, a philosophy, a thought, a practice, or a principle. If you don't have a hope that is grounded in the eternal person of Jesus Christ, when you experience chaos and catastrophe, your world will fall apart a thousand times over. And you will suffer a thousand lesser deaths along the way to experiencing a hope that does not satisfy, the next hope that does not satisfy, the next hope that does not satisfy. But when you find an eternal hope in the glory and the weightiness of Christ, you stop looking for it every other place. And you start seeing all of those things as a reminder, an indicator. They're just a signpost. It's given to us along the way to teach us that there's something behind that relationship with my wife. I'm experiencing something here. I'm never going to fully grasp it. It's an indicator of something greater that is to come. And the next time you go to that vacation spot that you love, you're going to have a hope, but it is going to fade away. It's meant to point you to something deeper, something greater, and something even more significant. And it's with that hope that I want to turn now uh, as we take the Lord's Supper together and remember Christ and his resurrection. If you guys don't mind, deacons, elders, music team, if you guys can come up, I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to pass out the elements for the Lord's Supper. Uh, when the plates come around, just a reminder, at Tulsa Bible Church, we believe that the Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances given to us for believers as a symbolic representation of the truth of the gospel that's taken place inside of our hearts as believers. So, uh, parents, we trust you. If your kids are here wondering if they should take the Lord's Supper, if you believe that they are true believers in Jesus, we welcome you and invite you uh, to partake with us. If this is your first time, you've, you've never heard the gospel before, you're hearing this story about Jesus, we invite you to celebrate with us as a first-time believer in taking this the supper with us as well. All right, so make sure you grab two cups, and the bottom cup is the bread, and the top cup is the juice. Hold on to those. We'll partake together when I come back up, and we'll read more about this biblical hope. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for, um, again, just the strong hope, the significance, the weightiness of your glory that you have given to us simply by your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that the experience of hope would not be something we long for as much as the person of hope, a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has died in our place on the cross and that in him we have a hope that can overcome any challenge, any difficulty, any amount of suffering that we would go through. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray this morning. Amen.